Speaking of it can always be better. That's quite the torch you just pulled out. Yeah, it's a three flame. Man, I feel like I need to one-up you and go get it. Go to the hardware store and pull an oxyacetylene out. I think that light it up even better. Yeah. I know some dudes that keep the little, what is it, the Benzy, the Benz yeah, the torch. Sugar torches. Yeah, they keep yeah. that in the garage for starting the camp, uh, bonfires behind the house or burning their cardboard or, you know, lighting the occasional cigar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty baller. Um, well, thanks for taking me to this secret hideout place in the middle of nowhere. It feels a little... Uh, <laughs> Creepy? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is... If, if I were ever looking at a place to hide things that should never be found, this would be where I would probably go. There is a swamp. I've seen two driveways, and it's well secluded other than, like, one angle. So... Yeah, but it's funny. This is all state land in front of us, and I've walked most of it. And you'd be surprised, like, where you'll find a little bonfire set up in a pile of trash out there or a washing machine that somebody dumped off the back of their four-wheeler back in the woods. It's so ridiculous what people do. So I wouldn't even put it past somebody to be, you know, just standing out there. That makes some sense. Creepy. Well, we were going to go to that other spot, but then the state picker-uppers were there. I think they were dumping wood chips. Mm. like they uh, Make it a bonfire. They mulched up some brush or something. Yeah. Well, hey, I wanted to chat about something that comes up not, I mean, it does, we don't talk about it often. We don't ever really, you and I anyway, don't discuss it. But I hear other people um, who are, let's call it, it, getting into the sport, it sort of becomes a, a talking point. Like, oh, I want to be a pro or like those guys are pros or whatever. Um, what's a pro to you? Like, what does it mean to be a pro? Man, I... So, we've had this discussion now. This will be the second time. Yeah, we'll be, we made it a pretty good chunk <laughs> um, in the first. And pass. you pulled up the definition, so we probably you probably should do that while I'm while I'm talking, but or maybe not. Yeah, I remember it. Okay, so to me, uh, you know, just purely from a definition standpoint, it means that you're getting paid. You know, it comes from the word profession and uh, a person who gets paid. So, um, when I hear that word, obviously there's specific things that people will assume. Um, that I don't know anybody that gets paid to just shoot in the PRS. There might be, you know, you're going to win a prize. You might win a stage, um, stuff like the AG Cup where you're. It, it's cool because you're betting on yourself. It's not like the money comes from anywhere other than the shooters. Um, actually, at the AG Cup, a lot of it is from sponsors, but if you think about it, there's 40 shooters and they give away, you know, the money that the shooters put into it. Um, so it's... Uh, it's kind of a, a circular process, but yeah. Anyway, long story short, yeah, self-funded. Uh, I think you're referring more to the classifications in the PRS. Yeah, yeah, a little bit the classifications, and then also just the idea of what does it mean to be a pro. Um, but yeah, the classifications, you know, pro, semi-pro, marksman, and amateur. You know, I think people have this. Oh, I'm an amateur. Oh, he's a marksman. Oh, he's semi-pro. And then, oh, there's the pros, right? Um, I hear that word a lot. I mean, I've heard it on TV. I mean, we've had people interview us, and they use that word, and it's used kind of loosely uh, in the sense that to kind of connote that there are, you have attributes or you do this for a living, when really, and some of us do, I mean, to an extent, like I work in the industry and also shoot, um, you know, PRS, quote, as a pro. Um, sponsorships don't necessarily mean you're a pro nor does it mean that lack of sponsorship 
doesn't make you a pro. That's not what it is. Yeah, there's quite a few pros that don't have any sponsors. Yeah, and that's in terms of classification. Right. I okay, also think that that applies to your skill level. There are really good shooters, I mean, incredibly good world-class shooters who don't really have a sponsorship. Like They don't wear a jersey, per se, or, or anything specific. Like Nick Adarzi is one. I know he has some affiliations with Defiance and a few others, but... Um, Loophole. Loophole, yeah. But, I mean, it's they're, they're more indirect. Like, he uses the gear that he uses... And he uses it because he just hammers with it. Um, that doesn't make him less of a professional or less of a pro. So in my mind, a pro is simply someone who has become expert. And to me, there's a difference between being, quote, a pro and being an expert. An expert is, in my mind, someone who not only has the knowledge base around what they're attempting to do, but all the related ancillary knowledge that will help them solve problems in their core part of core goal that may be seemingly unrelated to what they're actually doing at the moment, but they can work through it really quickly and come up to the right result. Or said another way, if you asked me, hey, can you tell me how to hit a target at 100 yards or at 1,000 yards? Yeah, I can tell you how. That doesn't mean that that's the only component, but I can give you the quick solution. Yeah, dial up about this much. Um, you will spot where it misses and then correct from there. You'll hit it. That doesn't make me an expert or you an expert. If I told you how to do that, that wouldn't make you an expert all of a sudden. It would simply make you capable of hitting a thousand yard target under those conditions. An expert should be able to take those skills and make them happen at any given moment and overcome challenges that they haven't seen faster than somebody without that same skill set or knowledge base. Yeah, but the classifications in PRS really have nothing to do with that. Correct. Um, it has honestly more to do with the skills or as much as your skills it has um as much to do as the skills of the field that you're competing in because it's a percentage it's a strict percentage of yep and i don't quote me on it it's the top 15 percent or 10 percent of yeah. of, think you're right. of all the people in the series are classified as pro and i don't think i think they changed the rules now once you're in the pro classification and you never go down i Is that think true? that's true okay. Yeah, so it effectively means that people couldn't go from pro to, say, taking away a year and then coming back as an AM because they're all unclassed. Um, they'll retain the pro classification. It just prevents it makes, people it from makes sense. getting gamed and accidentally well, winning a trophy from somebody who's not really a... Yeah, I don't think there's a single person that's been in pro status that wants it to go down like that. And then there's been a couple of uncomfortable scenarios, and I think that's where they, yeah. they changed the rules on that. But um, yeah, the... The weird thing for me is like I don't I don't think about it I don't think about the classification I just want to be the best and that's what drives me um, and there has become this like weird and this is maybe just in some of the online forums and, and chat groups and, and Facebook pages and stuff there's just been this weird negativity between those three uh, associated with those three letters P R O and um, yeah it's it's weird but. Um, yeah, I don't even I don't even think about it. Um, it was a goal of mine, to be quite honest, uh, when I first started. Like, oh, I just want to get to pro classification, but it wasn't because I that way I could say I was a pro. It's because that meant that I was in that top ten percent. Yeah, and it was a means to an end. Yeah, well, indirectly. Yeah, it was like a high level goal that didn't have because when you first start, you don't even know what that means. Like, you know what it means. You're in the top ten or fifteen or whatever percentage. You know that it means that, but you don't know how to get there. You just know yeah. that the best shooters that you're competing against are in that category. So whatever it means, I want to be there. Like I want to figure out how to get there. And it seems unreachable at first. 
But then once you start dissecting, and this is kind of the journey that you and I have both been on over the last you know six years or so, um, it's not like somebody can tell you exactly what that journey looks like because it's different for everyone. And the the milestones for that journey are changing all the time. Targets are getting smaller. Matches are getting the time uh, hacks are getting faster. The the props are getting more complicated. The stages are getting more complicated. If you had asked me this question six years ago, what does it take to be a pro? It'd be a different answer than mm-hmm. today. And I don't really think any of that matters. I think from my perspective, it just means that I've I've assessed all those questions and um, overcome the obstacles that it took to pr- perform at the highest level, which, you know, you and I both, we, we want to be number one. So yeah. it doesn't matter where that line is. Like, we want to be well above it. I want to figure out how I can, how I can uh, see things before they happen so that I can come up with a solution so that I can be playing five to ten games ahead, like five to ten matches ahead of the game. And if I can do that, um, then I can hopefully, by default, will be performing my best possible at the current match. You know, yeah. those things work themselves out. That's why I tell people: don't worry about the end result of the match. Don't think about the prize table. Don't think about the hardware. Think about one shot at a time and start stacking those points. And at the end, what did we say on Cortina's podcast? You can't avoid winning. Yeah, like if you're just exactly. stacking those points, you can't avoid it. And stacking points, if you want to be pro. That's what you need to do. So it all comes with the very most basic elements. And I think you made a comment before we started recording. That we do a lot of discussion on where our headspace is at and where our current abilities are and trying to communicate where and how we are operating today. But we might overlook a lot of little things that we learned along the way that people haven't learned yet that we just haven't even communicated. Yeah, because we just don't know. We don't know what we're forgetting to tell or forgetting to talk about because they were either so early in our process that we picked them up. Um, when you first start, you know, like for instance, somebody who's never handled a firearm would pick up a firearm and not realize there's a safety on it, right? And you might, if you were never taught how to operate a safety, if, if you didn't go through, you know, basic firearms training or your wherever you learned was self-taught and so you didn't know what that was you just know it went bang put it away and kept going once a year for deer hunting you would never think to know that there is such a thing as a safety however if you were taught that then you train that to someone else and at some point like we don't when's the last time we talked about a safety other than the idea that oh i accidentally flipped it in a match and we had to figure out how to block it i have a very funny uh, story about this that this just made me think of while you're talking about it. It's the perfect time to say it. You just asked me that, and I just thought about it last weekend because I had a new shooter um, shoot his first match with me with the loner gun that I provide, and I noticed on the second stage he was flipping the safety off before his first round. And I'm like, okay, I don't know how he could have bumped the safety on, but whatever. Like He flipped it off. Then the next stage, I saw him do the same thing, <laughs> flip it off. And I'm like, man, nobody told this guy that we don't use safeties. And I don't want people thinking on this podcast that we're doing unsafe activities because I don't want to make any assumptions here. Uh, If there's no round in the chamber of the rifle, it is safe. It's a bolt action. Yeah. And it's open. It's an open bolt with no round in the chamber. Yeah. So it's not that we're operating unsafe, but science says that without a round in the chamber and without the bolt closed, it cannot go off. So most of the stages in these competitions are started with the magazine in and the bolt back. And this, this person had never been told that you don't need the safety on for this type of competition. Now it doesn't hurt 
in, yeah. in real life, in, in a hunting scenario, you definitely want to have a safety on if you got to run in the chamber on the bolt close, but it just costs time in this, in this, um, sport. So I told him after the third season, I'm like, Hey, you don't need that. <laughs> I should just yeah. cut, I should just cut it off there. Um, but it was just a funny example of, like you said, uh, originally before we started recording, there's so many things that people don't, that we assume that people know that they might not know. And that's something very small. Like I do something completely weird with my safety. I'm not going to say what it is, but you might as well just say it's not there. You know, it, yeah. it, uh, it doesn't, it's not a factor in competition, so I make it not a factor on my Correct. competition rifle. Yeah, all the other rifles I have have one. I think the, you yep. know, the larger point of this is simply if we take all the things that we know and that we've accumulated to get to where we are, there are going to be aspects that we don't remember because they happen so early and they, they happen so fast. I mean, if you think about the pure volume of things you have to learn as you first start, A, what type of rifle... What type of bags? Do I need binos? How do I dial a scope? Do I do mills versus MOA? And you're all these things are fire hosing at you and you're spending hours trying to learn all the things. And you read just a couple of posts on a forum, for instance, they might hit 20 or 30 really important concepts, not necessarily in the right way or the right order, but they might touch on 30 or 40 points in a given long-winded paragraph that are all really important on their own, but they just kind of glaze over them as if they're like, yeah, it's no big deal, like not important. Like, yeah, you press the trigger. Well, did you press it or did you follow through? You know, you know, I ran the bolt. Well, did you run the bolt smoothly or did you just ram it home, ram it open, ram it home again? Like the devil is in the details when it comes to getting as good as you can possibly be when everyone else around you is trying to get as good as they can possibly be. And so what I hope we can do with this episode is actually start from... Just go from bottom to top. All the things that maybe someone who's just getting going that wants to aspire to be a quote-unquote pro would have to do or maybe how their perception now might need to be different than what we would perceive it if we were looking back and doing it again. Or just what it should be. What ours is versus theirs. Yeah, I mean, at at some point you got to think about going to some matches if you're going to be a pro, right? Yeah, match schedule is important. Yeah. Yeah. So my philosophy at the beginning of that was being a pro to me meant that I made it to the finale. Um, and I know there's pros that don't make it to the, um, there's pros that don't make it to the finale. Um, but there's also people that aren't pro that do make it to the finale. Mm -hmm. But for me, like that was more of a, in my mind, that was like the major milestone for my first season. And when you start thinking, how do you make it to the finale? Because when I make goals, I start with a high level goal and to try to break it down. So to yep. me, a pro was more associated in my opinion with making it to the final match of the season, get that, getting that invite. And then I did the research and I said, well, how do I make it to the finale? Well, it turns out you have to be in the top 150 in the pro series match schedule, or you can get an invite as one of the top three in your region at the season um, finale in, in your region. And so then I broke it down to three matches, pro matches, because that's what I could afford to go to and hoping that I would, you know, end up in the top 150. And I broke it down to five regional matches, hoping that I could, you know, put down a good score and get in the top three. And that was my, that was my plan. So um, I think a lot of people start regional and then they're like, okay, I'm, I'm decent in the region, but I want to find out what's more out there. And then they start traveling to pro matches within that four to six seven eight hour range 
Um, but for you and I now, like we're about to head to the airport and fly to Colorado and sh- shoot a match. Yeah. And, and t- that just seems like no big deal to us. Where back at the beginning, it seemed insurmountable to do the planning, to come up with the finances, to make all that happen. And we've just, you know, made priorities in life that are different than they were six, five, six years ago. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the match schedule aspect, I think early on, you know, if you think I'm going to shoot one day's oh, and I may shoot a two-day. Then you hear about the finale. Man, it would be cool to go to that. That is one approach to say, I want to get better. And that's sort of your reach goal, if you will, is making it to the pro finale. Well, if you shoot a few matches and you realize my reach goal is being the best in the world, then you go, how do I do that? And you go, I need to shoot a lot of pro matches and use one days as practice. That's a very different approach. A, it puts you in touch with more locations to get different learning opportunities, meaning traveling across the country. B, you're shooting against a much deeper, bigger field. There's more stress. There's wider arrays of targets. You run into a bigger gamut of conditions that you're not used to. Um, All of those things then transfer back to one days where you can leverage less important on your finish in a one day and more on the skill transfer from, say, a high-stress two-day to a less stressful one day. And we've talked about it in in the past, but I do think that people who are just getting going, if you feel that you are trying to go to the same level that we are, be in the top 10 in a match, that's the approach that you need to take to this. It can't start with, I'm just going to see how I do for a couple of one days because your success is going to be limited in your first few matches. So you're just going to have to trust and know that if you give it everything you have, you will be as good as you can be if you do that right along with everything else you do. You won't do them all right. You're just going to have to learn and you'll fix the things you do wrong correctly. So match scheduling, I mean, that was one approach that I felt we changed, at least personally, I changed mine very quickly. I started really similar. I'm going to go shoot a couple of one days. Oh, this is really fun. Immediately thinking, I just want to win or get in the top 10 in like a regional match. When I did that very early on, I realized that the bar was set way too low. I need to shift my focus. Okay, now it's, you know, be top 10 in the state and top 50 to 100 in the country. And then I realized halfway through that season, oh, these are also too low. Now let's go figure out how to be the best in the world. And now I have a goal that's always butting up against impossible, unattainable, because it's very, I mean, there's only one person in the world who can be the best in the world. And it changes all the time. So Well, it changes once a year, (laughs) once every two years. Yeah, (laughs) there's some position jockeying all the time. So that's just scheduling. Um, That's something I think that early on it can help you if you plan your approach and your commitment to the sport appropriately, you'll learn further faster. Well, there's ways if you can only afford the time and or the money to shoot regional matches, there's ways to challenge yourself yeah. within those matches. Agreed. Um, one that comes to mind is like uh, volunteer to be the squad mom. Um, it, it adds extra an extra layer of stress, which requires extra focus and mental management so if you really want to work on your mental management um find somebody that you want to coach and be a mentor for somebody and be the squad mom at a local match (laughs) you're managing two sets of gear and you're managing you know eight other people um you know running the stages so I, i was i did that a few years ago and i um was totally against it at first. And by the end of the match, when I kind of did okay, I'm like, you know what? That wasn't so bad. And the stress level kind of simulated something that was more higher stakes for me. And I really, I really enjoyed it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think something like that or 
we've talked about it we haven't done it yet but shoot a whole local match support side something like that yeah. where you're challenging yourself to practice things that in in a match environment that you will encounter at bigger matches and you're building proficiency in it you know so i i don't think you have to get outside for the pro matches to accelerate your plan to be a pro if that's really what you want to do um and honestly i don't even think the classification really matters i think what i'm talking about is like just being the best you can be so yeah. i think that's synonymous but yep. um i don't want this to come off like oh you know you have to be a pro and your goal should be a pro like really it, it doesn't matter no it's just we set our goal to be as best in the world i mean that was what we were trying to attain so that means we're our litmus test is the top 10 in the world um the next aspect uh to switch gears once you've decided what you're going to shoot kind of and also why you want to shoot we talked about that kind of loosely but effectively defining your purpose for why you like the sport why you want to grow um and you have a match schedule a lot of people spend way too much time thinking about their rifle or specific pieces of equipment and i think in the wrong context um, I know when I first started, so the first six months, I remember thinking of my rifle as, even though I had had a lot of different rifles, I still sort of babied it. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, I was, you know, don't set it on a barricade hard. I just mean, I thought of it as this piece of equipment that, oh, the rifle is the rifle now. It's exactly how it is. I can't change anything. And it's, it should, it should stay exactly like it is. No, I, I wasn't willing to change very quickly. And then I realized shortly therein, hey, I need to really start experimenting with how to set this up, how to drive it differently, how to use different weights or different configurations of barrels, suppressors, muzzle brakes. But I need to do it very quickly in one sense, like find the thing that's getting me to where I am, then put the damn thing down and just, my rifle is just a tool, go learn how to actually drive my rifle and how to see differently while watching spots, getting to the parts of the shot that really mattered. That was something I had to learn really quickly that I didn't for the first six months that I was shooting. Maybe even nine months, if I'm being honest, in PRS. You said you didn't baby your rifle, but you remember when you put your rifle in the back of the van today? That was different. <laughs> not really. That was similar. Um, it's not a big case. I'm just hedging my bet because it's upside down right now. Um, but effectively, I said, don't put anything on my rifle case. Don't, yeah, and then we're going to throw it in the bottom of a plane, and people are going to throw their stuff yeah, on top yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I know we were about to put a lot of weight on it, and that flexible cover is pretty thin. Have so. you seen when they go like come off of the conveyor yeah but out of sight is out of mind the ground see that part i'm okay with because i'm like okay it can take a corner but if i don't see it it never happened uh i, I just <laughs> assume it happened assume it's broken until you yeah. prove otherwise point being if you can find some gear like work on gear that works with you but if something doesn't seem to be working um or not working good enough like I guess there's two parts of this, and they're a little bit opposed to one another, kind of talking on both sides. One is, don't expect a piece of gear to transform your shooting overnight to where you are now hitting every target and you're center punching everything perfectly. That goes hand in hand with the idea that some gear absolutely can be hindering you, so you should be willing to swap it out despite the investment you've made in it. So that is a really weird juxtaposition, and they can't both, they're kind of mutually exclusive, right? Both can't be true. But at times things can be not helping you. Um, I've seen a couple of shooters, you know, buying what they think is the right bag for their application because they're so new to this. Like they buy those Caldwell corn filled bags and they're okay. I mean, they'll let you support a rifle if you want to zero from a non 
ideal position using the forend as support. And that's great, but that's just not the ideal way to use a bag or the type of bag to use for our sport. So I think a lot of people early on recognize that and they get something like a Schmedium or they get something like the, one of the Weebad fortune cookies or something similar. Um, that's weird because outside of the sport, you don't see those. You like, don't. If you show up at a shooting range and the person doesn't shoot PRS, you're not going to see those bags, which, yeah. is a, which is a damn shame. It is, and I'm sure that'll change eventually. But yeah. that said, it's it's one of those things, you know, your bipod, becoming intimate with your gear is probably the more important skill that you and I now value above and beyond all else. We recognize the attributes. Having a bipod that's very stable, that doesn't move very much, you know, there's very little play. But at the same time, we have a bipod with us that does have some play, but it's designed to be extremely versatile, i.e. the Skypod, so you can get to those really awkward heights where it's a strategic advantage to have something that can be 15 inches tall in the front of the forend because it's now allowing you more comfort behind the rifle or supported in an area you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach with a normal bipod. But in order to have that piece of equipment and use it the way it's intended requires expert-level practice with in becoming intimate with that gear. Yeah. Yeah, um, I didn't tell you, but a couple weeks ago I had a good conversation with Chris Way on dry fire and stuff. I don't know if you saw or heard that, but um, it came out of his podcast. And a lot of the stuff you're saying right now is is exactly resonating with my original purpose of dry firing. So when I when I think about dry firing and the journey that it, I went through with dry firing, it was the very first thing was becoming intimate with my gear, and that just means everything that it can possibly you know, adjust and, and every way that you can position your bipod on your rail and the bag orientation and how you're gripping the bag. All, all this stuff needs to be flushed out because just because somebody else does it and it works for them doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And right. then, then when you're under stress of time and some issue on the clock, you need to be able to reach up and adjust your rifle or your bipod to make sure that it's, it's a good natural point of aim. You know, you don't want to struggle and deal with something that isn't perfect. Sorry, that's my microphone. No, that's your mic stand. You mic stand. Um, yeah. So, and it, and it's funny because you say don't don't stay on one gear or one piece of gear or one product for too long, but also don't give up on it too easily. And the way that I described that was, if you've trained with it, um, you've become intimate with it. So, it's 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 good and it's bad. It's you have all this time invested with that gear. So you know how it works. So you know the pain that it took for you to get intimate with that gear. It should, you should resist changing. Um, but if you want to change, now you at least know what that gear is capable of. So it's it's essentially either way. You have to go through that pain. You have to go through that process of figuring out your gear so that you know when you change if it's actually better or not. Yeah. And then it should resist. It should make you resist the change because you have that level of comfortability with it. Yep. If that makes sense. So, ooh, a gray squirrel. Ooh, sweet blackies and a gray. It's a pretty good one. Oh, that's a fatty, too. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Oh, you didn't bring it because we're going to that place. Oh, that would That's actually awesome. a fox squirrel. Is it fox or gray? No, it's a gray. Yeah. He's running right toward us, dude. He's, he's, oh, he's about yards. to hop. Oh, he's coming in. <laughs> he's going to make. Offer him a corn nut. Oh, We've got no. some corn nuts right here. I bet. Who's looking right at you, dude? Yeah, he's like, oh, shit, he saw you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, that's um, what I was trying to say coming, and communicate in that yeah. was that, you know, you need to become intimate with your gear because um, that will give you that level of comfortability on the clock and, and navigating difficult situations. But also it'll allow you to baseline an, an understanding of when you do change gear, 
what is it better or worse? And what do you need to make better or worse? Yeah. Yeah. Or, well, you generally don't want to make things worse. Um, but what does it need to be better than? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there's trade-offs. We know that that's why we carry two bipods. One of them I is... I carry three. You carry... I know. That's why most humans carry three, two bipods. Um, the the purpose of a very stiff, rigid bipod that has almost no play is simply to take any amount of instability out of the system when you're under the most stable possible conditions, i.e. you're prone on a cement pad or off of a bench that's very solid. But then there's other situations where the versatility of being able to pan left, right, quickly with your rifle, have different height adjustments really rapidly that could vary significantly, that is a bigger benefit than having something that is ultra-stable because not getting to a shot, not breaking it, is a zero, whereas getting to the shot and being able to break it, even with a little bit of motion during the shot... It's almost imperceptible. Is get you two more, four more points. Mm-hmm. So that's the evaluation criteria that we go through with our gear. Where are we deficient? Can we make it better? Well, here's the baseline of what needs to be, what needs to happen in order to add or subtract a piece of equipment. And we're evaluating those changes purely based on what we know at an expert level with all the equipment that we currently have. So, like, I just got a ground pod. The thing I have not used it yet, but the thing feels awesome. Bolted on my rifle. I can't wait to practice with it. Things were actually really cool. Yeah, it did feel pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, that goes to the next point. You know, new shooters will generally try new things on the clock, uh, new techniques, hear something, see something. I want to go do that. We do not do that. Like, <laughs> I've rarely done it. And when I have, it has proven to me time and time again that I am 0 and 8 for trying new things on the clock. So. Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, I think the better you get, the more you can make it work. You can kinda, make it work. You can kind of visualize how things could go wrong and avoid those things. Yeah, but that's a skill that you have to learn by becoming proficient everywhere else because yeah. you'll recognize the trap or but the you'll pitfall. Al- but you'll also bring a backup plan. So, really good example of this. Planning, and it's called stage planning. You know, when we went to Frostbite, remember the stairs, Groundhog, Gopher stage? So this is one where you had to shoot off of two different positions. Troop line going out, troop line coming back on these gophers in the middle of a field from 300 to like 550 or 600 yards. Um, You got to choose any of three different positions effectively, or actually more, but it was like a semi-modified prone, a low prone, like almost bipod height, but you you couldn't use a bipod. You had to shoot off of this railing, or you could shoot off of the stairs. And so... Chad and I, plus a bunch of other people in the squad, were all evaluating this prop. Obvious choice on the top, modified prone. Now you're torn. Which of these next two positions is the least bad? The least suck, right? And it's stairs, doing a bipod with a rear bag, trying to get shoehorned into this weird angle that could almost let your bipod fall off the edge. Well, that's a that's a big no-no. Two, bag or double bag off the stairs, maybe. Or low prone, where you get your line of sight directly on the ground, where you may not even be able to see the targets because of the mirage and the conditions at the time. Which one of those is, you know, so to me, it was not seeing the targets is a guaranteed no-hit scenario. (laughs) Zeros. So that was the one I was trying to avoid. Are the stairs good? Yeah, well, now it's evaluating, should I use bipod rear bag off the stairs? Or is it going to be a double bag? And the double bag could be a little bit wobbly because of how the stairs were constructed. Which one's worse? Well, I know that my strength was a bag, so I decided to just play to my strengths and use a double bag, and it worked out okay. I made some other errors on the stage, 
but I watched others go low prone and have success. And I fought really hard with whether the low prone versus that bag, double bag or bipod was really the right play. Even, you know, at our level, we struggle with those decisions at times. I think the difference being because I know that I'm going to struggle with the decision and I'm making this hard choice between say the best options, some shooters just, they don't know that there's another option. So they just do. And they won't realize that there's potentially a better way. And they'll never have thought that there could have been a different way, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're just lemming from whoever did it before them. Yep. I mean, most people would, in that scenario, most people went prone and just dealt with the mirage. But I don't know. I was hoping that it would give us an edge. Turned out it didn't. Nope. No, no edge. No, but no that's okay. I remember, we learned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember we reviewed that stage, so people can go back and listen to that. Yep. Um, practice. So outside of gear and outside of you know some stage approaches, which what do you think is different between you know, beginning and now, quote, our current level for practice? Well, I mean, I can say that if you interview um, all the pros in the top 50 or whatever, I bet you 30 of them will admit that they don't really practice. They don't practice much, if at all, which is weird to me. I've tried to figure out how that how that is and why it is, and I, I think I have an answer, but I, that's I think, would be surprising to a lot of people that the top shooters don't practice much or they practice differently or they they still shoot, but they don't consider it practice. They're just checking data, checking load data, breaking in barrels, stuff like that. I think that's uh, probably very true. When I first started, I practiced a lot. And I mean, just running drills for the sake of running drills, working on speed, working on footwork, efficiency, all of the things you could possibly work on, I was one by one, knocking them out with drills, quote unquote, scheduling time to physically go practice. I don't do that anymore. Now, when I think, hey, I've got to go to the range, I have other tasks to accomplish. And in those tasks, I will find ways of improving and practicing the things that I know I need to maintain. And that's the key word. At the elite level, you're maintaining some skill level and trying to find very small advantages Whereas at the amateur level, you're still learning in the formative process, trying to become expert level or say expert for you in a lot of those processes. So you don't have them down pat, which means that shot to shot variation, how you set up to the rifle, how you place a bag. Do you, are you conscious of how the bag is physically setting on the prop? Are you conscious of how you're holding the rifle, how you're pulling it off of the rifle? Those seem like literally mundane details because ultimately you're not breaking a trigger during those. But if you don't do them the exact same way, that leads to some creep in your skill set and your precision or your point of impact. And those all have cascade effects that affect your match performance. At the elite levels, consistency of all those items is sort of already understood and you're working on skill maintenance as opposed to skill development. And so not practicing is not actually saying we're not practicing. It just means we're maintaining what we already know. Yeah, there is an occasional time where I'll go out and because I've seen somebody do something slightly different or I come up with a different idea of how I could accomplish the same task that I've been doing over and over again. And I will go out and explore it, but it's pretty rare. Most of the time these days, my quote unquote training is done breaking in barrels. And, you know, you and I go through four plus barrels a year. So if you say it takes three to four hundred rounds to truly break in a barrel, let's just call it five hundred um, you know, you get 2000 plus rounds of practice, Yep, breaking, just breaking in barrels, you know, and then there's practice in between that, um, as well. So 
I think, uh, you know, like you said, my practice is in between uh, the priority of other things and it just kind of falls in there. Like I'll take a sawhorse and take it to the, take it to the range with me when I'm going to do load development or check a load that I've made. And I'll just, you know, do some positional five, five, five round groups or something, you know, something like that. Nothing, nothing crazy, but just want to make sure I still have it. And turns out I still do. (laughs) (laughs) I've done some pretty weird things with some props that I found in the back of my truck, just odd stuff and messing with bipod on, on weird, weird, uh, just garbage that's been in the back of my truck. You know, just stuff like that. Like I, I tell people when I'm, when I was dry firing at the beginning, I would try, if there was one, if there was one, uh, well understood and standardized way to approach a prop, I would try to find five more that weren't standard just so that I could explore my gear and explore the prop and explore my body type and position to see if there was, see what I could feel in those other weird ways to approach the same prop. Because it's funny, you'll see amateurs that um, that go first on a stage and don't get to watch somebody else. They'll come up with some pretty unique things. Yeah. And to be quite honest, some of them um, are pretty creative. And uh, I like trying things that push the limits of the gear and my body just in case I need to get into something weird like that. Yeah, it is it is definitely... A, <laughs> it's kind of like, what is it? If you asked a kid you know, who's never seen like some art piece what is that oh it's looks like two elephants holding a balloon near an ice cream stand or something like that you you could not imagine what's going to come out of their mouth and you're like okay and for them it's completely valid well you know when you're brand new and you haven't seen hundreds of shooters running the similar types of stages with similar gear you just come up with your own solution that doesn't make it right that also doesn't make it doesn't wrong. make it wrong either. No, and that's exactly where I think the innovation we've sort of we've gotten past the base level of skill, and now it becomes innovation to become incrementally better small, when we go do small, something. It's very small. <laughs> so, example I have on this is um, when I went to both practice and confirm prior to this match. Um, the only thing that I truly worked on were my follow my inhale exhale. I did about 50 reps on dry fire before I left just because I had some time and was trying to get a new grip set up. So while I'm setting up my grip position to make sure it's set up properly, I'm also cycling in between practicing my inhale, exhale, which again, I'm maintaining. Once I get it all set up the way I want, swap the things, I go through a quick torque spec on everything on the rifle. As we talked about, you said, hey, make sure everything's torque because you knew it was Mm -hmm. a new chassis. So I let my buddy help me, you know, remotely reminding me to do the thing that I already needed to do got that done, go to the range. In the mod prone, it was just, okay, let's refocus on the exhale now with live fire. And as soon as I did a couple of those, I switched to don't blink. And I was actually just working on not letting my eyes blink to see through the shot because that's a skill that I've practiced in the past. And once I did that for about 20 shots, I then switched to a different one off of a bag. I'm like, okay, I know I've got the don't blink, see through the shot, but now I'm working on about a Let's call it a one to three degree angle change in how my thumb is oriented on a grip. You mm-hmm. cannot see it from a photo. I can feel where it contacts my finger, but it's not like monumental or game changing. It's just the difference of did it feel comfortable? Did the reticle move exactly the same way post shot every time? Or was it a little less consistent this way than that way? I just need to make it find a point to go, that's my reference point. So when I'm practicing, quote unquote, it's really maintenance and really micro adjusting components to make sure I'm up to date with 
what feels right and then just doing those things over and over again. So that was my last hundred rounds over the last couple of days was basically that plus about 200 dry fires, 50 before and about 75, a hundred, something last night. So cool. Yeah. Mine was just, um, go check my ammo. Yep. I did that too. Yep. I did all those things. Clean my rifle, verify speeds. I think we're going to, my barrel. We're going to talk about this in another episode. Um, the parallel processing. Okay. That's going to be another episode, but, uh, so well, it needs to be soon because we got to hit hit the road for the airport. So yeah, we'll do it on the way back. I guess what what was the goal slash theme of this this discussion here? We started talking about what does it mean to be a pro. And yeah, I think it's slightly different for everyone, but um, I think it just to me it means being the best I can be. You know, call it whatever you want. So I don't care what classific- classification it is. I think the classifications are kind of cool in the PRS for people to work up through, though. It gives them motivation to say, hey, I am at this level. It gives me another tier above it to move up to and feel accomplished. And then the next tier above it to feel accomplished. So, um, But hopefully you can go right from AM to pro and everything's easy, right? Oh, yeah. That was it's easy. easy. It was so easy. <laughs> so easy. No, I th- my definition of a pro, I think, is more holistic a professional slash pro um at least what i strive for it to mean is i'm considered an expert in how i shoot how i conduct myself um and all the things that i can do to for the community to help it grow and to be a you know an active supporting member of the community of precision rifle shooting and i think if you can do all those things you are a pro that doesn't mean i am right now like i feel like i'm doing some of those really well and some of them not so well so I would like to think that a, somebody who's a pro is an expert in the way that they approach their processes, an expert in the way they approach their relationships. They handle, you know, situations and communication with sponsors and people that are interested in their products, you know, respectfully and gracefully. All those things matter. And to me, that's what defines, you know, a pro. Uh, in my mind, that's what defines it. Yeah. The totality, the sum of it all. I agree. Integrity, how you um, approach and interact with fellow shooters and and industry and sponsors. And um, yeah, it took me forever to, I feel like it was a mutual beneficial relationship when I decided to have some sponsors. Um, I shot for many years without it. And I know there's people that that's their primary objective to help be able to afford the sport. And I don't, I don't blame them for that. Um, I also think it's I see it as some community service as well because these companies support the um, the, the shooters, but they support the industry, and, and it's a very reciprocal relationship with mm-hmm. the um, the knowledge, the uh, the improvements, the stuff that they invest into the industry is for what we do, and then we give them feedback for improving the products so they can make products so that we can use them and we can all get better. So it was it took me a long time to decide. Um, who I wanted to represent because I, I honestly feel like it's more that I owe them more than they owe me. Like I want to represent them. I want to represent their products. And I tried all the products and then decided what I thought was the best and then what I thought was the best people. And that's how I ended up where I am today. And I, I'm, you and I, I think we're both sitting in a really great spot with great companies that, that love us and we love them. And I can't be happier for where I'm at today. Um, and the companies that we are associated with, they just have integrity. They support the sport. Um, they shoot matches. Like it's it's awesome. Yep. Okay. I so, agree. Yeah. 
if anybody has any questions offline on that, I mean, I don't really want to do a whole sponsorship episode, but no. Um, but I think it's it's a very interesting dynamic, and um, it's a it needs to be a reciprocal relationship. You know, it needs to be you give them as much as they give you. So um, I think that it's it's something to think about if you do want to take a company as a sponsor, um, and they want to have you. I think it just it doesn't come lightly, in my opinion. Nope, it does not. Okay. All right. Well, I think it's about that time. We got a boogie. Yeah, I'm going to go show you my little shooting spot here, and then we're going to get out of here. Ooh, where you do your desk pops? Yeah, desk pop. <laughs> when was your last desk pop? Uh, three days ago. <laughs> Mine was two days ago. All right, man. Well, All right. Let's hit the road. Flight. See you. See you.